Galatians chapter 2 is where we are this morning. We are going to look at chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, and then next week we're going to come back. I don't want to get all that rest of that chapter done in one day, uh, one Sunday. I want, to, I want to break it up into two parts. I want to slow it down a little bit because chapter 2, verse 11 through 16, not only is it the heart of the epistle, uh, the, the, one of the, the, you know, the main theme of the epistle, but it's also the heart of the gospel. It is the central truth and foundation of the gospel. It, it is chapter 2, verse 16, uh, 15, 16, and 17, specifically chapter 16, is a transitional verse in the book that goes from, if you remember, from the formal principle and what the reform is called, and that is the, the authority of the scriptures, the authority of the apostles, the authority of the message, the, that it has the, 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 it is the final authority of all uh, Christian faith and, and, and life to the material principle, which is the essential doctrine of faith, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this chapter 2, verse 16, I have the verse up for you. It says, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Justification by faith alone is what the reformers said. The church stands or falls upon that truth. And let me just remind you, to be justified, sometimes Bible translations say righteous. It comes from the same Greek word. It means to be made right with God, to be declared just, vindicated in the courtroom. It's a legal term. And I've said this before, and I'll keep saying it. Justification is one coin, two sides. One side is that we've been forgiven for our sins because of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other side, we are declared righteous because of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to our accounts. Philippians chapter 3 makes it very clear. Paul says this, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. He just went on this long litany of, of his Jewish heritage blamelessness according to the law. And he says, I count it as a loss for the sake of Christ to be found in him not having a righteousness, not being justified of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, not my own, the righteousness that depends on faith, an alien righteousness, something outside of us. If you remember, I've said this too before. The reformers, when they were looking at this term justice and righteousness, they were looking at the Latin Vulgate, which was the Bible of that era, the 1500s. But the Latin Vulgate is not from the original language, which was the Greek. And many of the reformers went to the Greek language and looked up that same word righteousness and justice, and they found out that the Latin term meant to make someone righteous, but yet the Greek term, term meant to declare, to regard, to impute righteousness. And when Paul uses that term justification, he's not saying that it is a way in which God makes you righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to people who do not have their own righteousness. To preach a gospel other than justification by faith alone, Paul says in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, is damnable. 
He said, even if an angel comes, another apostle, even if Peter himself, even if I come back and preach another gospel to you, let him be damned. Go to hell. Strong words from the apostle. And that's why he opened up his letter, if you remember, speaking about his authority, speaking about his apostolic authority and consequently his gospel message, verses 3 and 4, we see the gospel. He says, I I didn't get this from man. I didn't get this from Peter. I got this straight through a revelation from Jesus Christ himself and God the Father. They were questioning his apostolic authority. And Paul says, this message of justification by faith came from God himself. And he goes into chapter 1, verse 11 through 16. He rehearses his former life, his salvation experience. Verses 16 through 24 of chapter 1. He reveals his itinerary just to demonstrate that, again, his apostolic authority, his apostolic message came not from man but from God. Pastor Ricky picked up, did a great job in chapter 2. He said after 14 years... After Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he finally came to Jerusalem. If you remember from last week, he took Titus with him. He's a Greek. And here for the first time, look with me if you have your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 3. The first time we see what the real problem was in the churches in Galatia. Chapter 2, verse 3. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. False false teachers what's known as Judaizers, were spying and teaching here in Jerusalem that in order to be saved, justified before God, you got to be, you have faith in Jesus Christ and keep the law of Moses, particularly the rite of circumcision, which is the covenant sign, the Old Testament covenant sign. How does one get reconciled to God? How, how does the sinner become right with God? How does that happen? The gospel says it's by faith. And there were some saying, nope, it's faith plus works and these adding of laws these rituals and other standards whether whether it's a moral standard whether it is a ceremonial standard to faith as a means of justification is not only distorting the gospel but paul says brings you into bondage and he understood how important it was to to get it right to get the gospel right that, that eternal life and eternal damnation uh, is in the balance of getting it right it was so important to paul that he was willing to rebuke Peter. To openly rebuke the apostle Peter when he got it wrong. Chapter 2, verse 11. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw, Paul talking, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, 
live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? For we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Verse 16, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because, why are you saying this, Paul? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. May God add a blessing to this such important reading of his holy word. Four movements. Let's look at the opposition that faced Peter, and his name is Paul. We'll look at the motivation of driving Peter. It's, very, it's, it's important to see what, what has caused this contradiction to the gospel. We'll look at that. We'll look at the contradiction and what, what it looks like when you are not walking the walk, but just talking the talk. And finally, verse 16, we'll look at the justification of God. So number one, look at the opposition again in verse 11. Peter comes to Antioch, and he says, I, I, I stood before him, I, I, I went before him and opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. It doesn't mean condemned to hell. He means condemned in a sense of that he was clearly wrong in what he was doing. Now, can you imagine our next picnic? We're going to have it in July. We're going to be down at the Henry Hudson Park. Uh, we're going to celebrate uh, VBS. We have picnics together. And then all of a sudden... All kinds of noise coming from the, pit, from, the, from the place where they're having hamburgers. And me and Perry Jones are nose to nose, yelling at each other. Dragged out, knocked down, showdown. I think I could take him. Don't tell him. He's not here. I see you over there. Can you imagine? Hey, man. And me and him getting into it? <laughs> Peter is, is, is drawing away, and Paul is like, we're going to talk, and we're going to talk face-to-face. We're not going to gossip. We're not going to run the rumor mill. We're not going to go to somebody else, right? I'm going to pose you to your face, right directly to you. I'm going to confront you. What Peter was doing was doing it publicly, he, he was openly sinning to the point where others are being dragged away by this false gospel. In fact, Paul would tell young Timothy, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that they may stand in fear. Sometimes that needs to be done. And here is a point in case that it needs to be done. It is Paul's... Final way throughout this letter, we've been talking about his apostolic authority. It is Paul's final way to say, listen, I'm standing on the message, my apostolic authority that has been given to me by God himself by rebuking another apostle who stepped out. Paul's not writing to the church, and let me just, let me just say some things. Or and saying, look, I'm much better than Peter. I'm much superior to Peter. Commentators are all over the place. Listen, the bottom line is Peter stepped out of line with the gospel, the truth of the gospel, which is eternal in nature, and Paul stepped to him because his actions were wrong. And what's so interesting about this passage is, is that it's being done in Antioch, okay? That Paul is in Antioch. Peter comes from Jerusalem to Antioch where this confrontation took place. And that's important. I'll tell you why. If you remember, 
right before Jesus ascended to the Father, he told his disciples to do what? You to stay in Jerusalem. Stay in Jerusalem and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will do what? You will be empowered to be witnesses for me in demonstrating, declaring the gospel to the world. You will, you will go and be empowered. And what they do? They waited. The day of Pentecost came. The Holy Spirit was sent upon the church. The men were filled with the Spirit. You can just read this in Acts. And the gospel went from Jerusalem, a little further to Judea, a little further to Samaria. And when it started to go to the ends of the earth, which Jesus said, we see that taking place where? In Antioch. Antioch was the place where this new group of people were being filled with the Spirit as the gospel was being preached. They were Greeks. They were pagans. They had nothing to do with Judean law, the Jewish people. If you read Acts, you'll see the Jewish people get saved. You see the half-Jew Samaritans get saved. You see the God-fearers get saved. And these groups are getting saved. And when it gets to Antioch, it's the Greeks the polyethists, the people who, who believed in multiple gods. In fact, they were called Christians first where? In Antioch. Because there was no real national or ethnic description of them. So what you have in Antioch is the most multi-ethnic, uh, multi-generational, multi-class um, national church in the history of the church at that moment. People from all kinds of walks of life are there. And this little church in Antioch began to grow. Peter, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas became leaders there. And and they began to grow financially and numerically and it was the first place where they sent out missionaries. They they actually set aside Paul and Barnabas to go preach the gospel where in Galatia. And churches were formed and and God was doing a great work and people were getting saved and Gentiles were coming to faith. And I'm sure at some point when, when Paul and, and Barnabas came from Antioch to Jerusalem, uh, Ricky mentioned this last week, to bring an offering, he probably said to Peter, listen, when you get a chance, come up to Antioch. You won't believe what the Lord is doing up there. People are getting saved. Greeks and, 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 and pagans. It's amazing, Peter. When Someday come on up. And Paul goes back to Antioch with, with, with Barnabas. And who shows up? Peter. And this multi-ethnic, uh, uh, gospel-sending, loving community is under attack by Peter himself, who was led astray by the false gospel. And I want you to see the cultural context. There's a lot of pagans. There's a lot of different things going on up in Antioch that doesn't go on in Jerusalem. And one other thing I want you to see, which I think is really important. If you ever want to start a religious movement, <laughs> if you ever want to see something really get off the ground, some sort of religious crusade, don't write about two of the main guys fighting each other. Like, who does that? Oh, yeah, we believe in Christ, and yeah, these two guys are fighting about him. You only write that when it's what? True. This should give you more assurance of Scripture. Who puts that in there unless it was true? I think it also should remind us that even Peter was led astray. Okay, how many people here feel that they're more spiritual uh, understand more of scripture, have walked with Jesus for three years, been in the ministry more than Peter, right? Peter himself was led astray. That's what we're showing that movie on the gospel. People are being led astray by false teachers like Joel Osteen. He's a false teacher. You gotta be careful. 
You got to be careful. If Peter can walk, we got to be careful. So he's confronted. Look at the motivation that driving Peter. Verse 14, before men came from James, so that means from Jerusalem. Now, just so you know, when it says men came from James, does not mean that was sent by James. James is not doing this. We learned that in Acts chapter 15. They came up from James, not with James' authority. For before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. Word used for military withdrawal. He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Oh, Peter, 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 what happened? You get to the church, you come up maybe by the invitation of Paul, you see all that's going on, you're rejoicing that God is saving even pagan Gentiles, you're sitting down, you're having food with them, and then you look down the road, and there's some some people from Jerusalem. And you separate yourself. Why? Look at the motivation. Fear. What did fear cause? Hypocrisy. Let me explain a little bit. In the Old Testament, there were all kinds of of, of, um, clean laws, a complex series of regulations for worshipers in order to, to, to come into the presence of God, to be acceptable, to enter into the worship of God. You had to be ceremonially clean. People could not draw near to God for eating unclean foods like pork or eating foods offered to idols, partaking meat that wasn't properly drained with blood or wasn't um, uh, given properly to the priest and tithe and hands rituals. All those things are part of the Old Testament law. And you couldn't draw near to God if you violated the laws or if you like touched a dead person or you touched someone who touched a dead person. You say, well, why all that in the Old Testament? The ceremonial laws taught the people of God that God was holy. God was sinless. God was spotless. God was, there's no darkness in him. There's no sin in him. He is holy and perfect and flawless and blameless. And people are the opposite, right? We're sinful. We have blemishes. We're unholy. Our sin has called us to be dirty and that we need a cleansing. And that's what all this was about. That's what the, the food was about, the Old Testament sacrifice about, that we need to be cleansed if we want to walk into the presence of God. The law was given to separate them and say, we belong to the God of Israel, of creation. And even circumcision, the rite of circumcision, showed the world that they, the Jewish people, belonged to God. So whether... Peter was enjoying a brand new pork chop that he never had before. Maybe eating some chicken wings that were offered up to to idols. We don't know. One thing we do know, whatever he was doing was not permitted by Jewish dietary laws. And here's the deal. If the Jewish people want to keep their dietary restrictions, they may. If they want to circumcise their sons, they may. But don't say they must to be a Christian. And these two worlds were colliding, Gentile and Jew. And as much as there was collision going on in the New Testament, just read Acts. It was necessary to develop what they call New Testament ecclesiology, church life. Now, in our culture, you know, we don't put that much emphasis on food, fast food. You know, we we don't talk a lot about what a meal really means, right? 
unless you're Italian. I guess I'm the only one. But in Judaism, it was very important. In antiquity, it was very important. Let me read to you a quote from a Jewish scholar. He said this. In Judaism, listen, table fellowship, that's what this is, table fellowship, means fellowship before God. For eating the... For the eating of a piece of broken bread by someone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessings of God, which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. End quote. Think of Jesus in the Passover. He breaks the bread. He shares it. And we know from just Jesus' life, his person and his work, that he himself made it clear that his arrival changed the dietary laws. He ate with tax collectors and sinners. He was highly criticized for it in Luke chapter 15. The Pharisees and the religious leaders said, man, this guy's a prophet. Are you kidding me? Look at the people he's eating with. Peter was there. Peter saw the coming king inaugurating the coming kingdom and the dietary laws and the table practices that have changed. He was there, right? Yes, it gets better. He gets a special revelation in Acts chapter 10. He's on the rooftop, if you remember, in Joppa. He falls asleep, it's almost lunch, and a trance. He falls into a trance, and what happens? The heavens open, a great sheet descends, let down four corners, and in it all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, assorted creatures that they were never ever to eat, the Jewish people. This is Acts 10. Voice comes to heaven from heaven and says what? Rise up, Peter. Wake up. Kill and eat. Three times for emphasis. And what does Peter do? Peter does what Peter always does. He argues with God. No, God, no. Really? I'll go wherever you go. No, you won't. Yes, I will. No, you won't, Peter. Okay. You want to sit and argue again? I'm never going to eat that. And the voice says, no. Listen, what God has made clean, do not call common. Immediately after that vision, Paul gets sent to Caesarea to a Gentile's house, Cornelius. And his Gentile is born again, filled with the Spirit, baptized. What a lesson. Peter's like blown away what God does in chapter 10, verse 34. I see now that God shows no partiality. This is before he gets opposed to his face. Peter gets it. Later in Acts chapter 11... Peter goes to Jerusalem and says, you won't believe what happened. I was at this guy's house, Cornelius. I, the sheet came down, and then Cornelius got saved, chapter 10, 11. Uh, you're not going to believe this. And Jerusalem Jews said, man, you've got to be kidding me. That criticized Peter for even going there. Peter says, listen, I'm telling you what happened. Chapter 11, verse 17. God gave the same gifts to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit, as he gave to us, the Jews. When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. It's unbelievable what God is doing. He, got, he understood that. It's not just about evangelism. It's about table fellowship. God showed Peter in, in, in the way he, Jesus lived his life, in that vision, in the work that he was doing among the Gentiles, that no one is unclean if you are in Christ. He was more than happy to share a meal with the uncircumcised brothers in Christ. That's until what? He feared man. He feared. 
He feared what other people thought, other people would say, and the way other people looked at him. The Apostle Paul had a lot to say about cultural norms in contrast to this. In Romans, in 1 Corinthians, he talks about how it's okay to abstain from certain foods. It's okay to either enjoy or not enjoy, drink. It's okay to observe uh, certain days over other days. And if you read Paul's words carefully, what you'll find is not fear. What you find is that he says you can, you're permitted, you should abstain for the purpose of, not fear, love. Love of a brother, love of a sister, a weaker brother, a weaker sister. Well, for the gospel, so that many will come to know the love of God. Paul's motivation for this cultural differences was love. Peter, totally different. It's fear. Peter, Peter did not change what he believed. He just acted as if he did. And I think there had to be some disdain for those Christians who were not national racial background as he was. They were inferior And that was more important to Peter at that moment than gospel unity. It's not just racial, it's not just theological, it's motivational as well. He was acting as a coward. Not the first time, right? Matthew, he calls down curses on himself. I do not know that man. As the rooster crowed on the third time. St. Peter who denied the Lord around that campfire in fear of the maidservant, now denied him for fear of the circumcision party. Those who would say, you need Christ, believe on Jesus, have faith in him, and then follow these laws in order to be justified. What does that show us? We have to be careful, family. We have to be careful. And we have to ask ourselves the question. I'm going to ask this question, and I hope it resounds in your head for a few days. I want you to think about it. And I, I, I hope you don't just answer no right away. Listen to this question. Do we regard certain people? Do we regard people of certain racial, cultural, educational, financial, or any other reason inferior to us that we withdraw from them, withdraw our love from them, Withdraw our gospel love and demonstration and declaration to them. Political parties. Democrat, how can you be a Democrat? Republicans, how can you be a Republican? Immigrants. We have to be careful. Church. I'm not talking to the government. Church. Peter was ashamed of the gospel at this moment. Pastors, church leaders especially, must always be diligent to defend the gospel, even, maybe even more particular within the church. Because when the fear of man overcomes the fear of God, we will likely deny the gospel. It is interesting that Paul calls Peter's action, his withdrawal from table fellowship, hypocrisy. Why? Because Peter knew 
Peter knew better. He knew the food laws. He knew that circumcision were not the means of justification and not required. He knew that the Jesus on the cross died, his death, burial, and resurrection broke the, the, the bond, the, the chains that, that kept them together, that the barrier has been broken, and now they are one in Christ. But now he's acting different than what he knows to be true. That's what hypocrisy means, acting the part. He still believed the gospel, but he failed to practice the gospel. Peter knew the gospel, believed the gospel, but he did not reflect it in his life, and that's called hypocrisy. It's not an honest mistake. It's a mask of pretense. Even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas. You read about Barnabas in the New Testament, you see a great guy. A guy who just loves people. His name means son of encouragement. He's encouraging people. He's helping people. He's giving money in, in the book of Acts. He's, he's just a great guy who loves people. Even he was being taught something wrong. It affected him. He was being a hypocrite. And he too was being led astray and withdrawing himself from the very people he probably loved and encouraged. That's why Paul was so fired up. Peter was a man pleaser. Galatians 1, can't please man and be a servant of Christ. Motivation driving Peter. Look at the contradiction of the gospel, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, as public, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. I want you to notice twice in this chapter, last week Ricky, this week myself, where the word... And the apostle calls it standing on the truth of the gospel. Verse 5 was the issue of circumcision. Here, verse 14, the issue here is in Antioch. And what Paul is saying, listen, you're not in truth of the gospel if we have to force Titus to be circumcised and follow this law in order to be justified. You're not walking in truth of the gospel. You're not walking in the truth of the gospel if we can't have fellowship and eat and partake of meals together because what God has made clean is clean. In Christ, even both circumstances, you're not walking in truth of the gospel. Your lifestyle is not reflective of the gospel. There, as they say, we're talking the talk, but not walking the walk. And not only that, they were knocking Gentiles out of line too. Paul accused Peter of forcing the Gentiles to adapt to Jewish customs and practices in order to be accepted in the church. Family, listen, our, our behavior can undermine our belief. Our behavior can undermine our confession. It is possible for people to say, I'm a Christian with their mouths, yet deny it in their lives. He says, you're not walking in step, orthro, where we get the word straight, the prefix orthro, straight, orthodontist, straighten your teeth, orthopedics, walking straight. What Peter was saying, uh, uh, what Peter was saying that Paul was what? Not walking orthopedically, not as not straightforward and unwavering and sincerely, and his, obviously his conduct is not in line with the gospel. Not walking straight with the gospel. So, family, simply to say too that there's a way to walk and there's a way not to walk. There's a way to walk orthopro, you know, orthro straight, and there's a way to go 
off the balance beam. That's what he's saying. You're not walking in line. And what Peter's doing was saying, you're justified by faith alone, but I'm not going to have fellowship with you. I'm going to stick to my, to my Jewish rituals and, 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 and the law and I have to add that to you so you're not really part of the church. So what does it mean to walk in truth of the gospel? I love that verse. Tim Keller gives us two things that I want to share with you this morning. Number one, to walk in truth of the gospel, you have to first recognize that the message of the gospel is truth. We live in a postmodern culture. I understand that. There's no absolutes. Well, you may think so, but God doesn't. To walk in truth of the gospel, we must recognize that the message of the gospel is a set of claims. And the claim is that we are brought into a right relationship with God. We are justified by grace through faith in Jesus' perfect life that's been imputed to us, his substitutionary death, as he dies on the cross in our place and for our sins. John Stott, great theologian, said this. It is the good news that we sinners, guilty, and on the judgment of God, may be pardoned and accepted by sheer grace. His free and unmerited favor on the grounds of his son's death and not for any works or merits of our own. The truth of the gospel is the doctrine of justification, which means acceptance before God. It is by grace alone through faith alone, end quote. Family, but here's the problem. We are like Peter. We are like Peter, weak and sinful, and and we want to control our own lives. We, We want to be the savior of our lives. We want to justify ourselves. We want to be the lords and decide what we should do and should not do. We want to we want to somehow contribute our goodness, our, our good behavior. We want to be a part of this salvation so that we can feel good about ourselves. It's some sort of moral record we want to give. Many of you know the EE evangelism explosion. And the second question is, if you got to heaven, why would God let you into heaven? I read somewhere that 90% of the people that think they're going to heaven in America, over, I think it was 90%, the reason... They gave was something that they did. Well, I'm, of course I'm going to heaven. I'm, I'm, I am a decent person. They believe in that Joel Osteen lie. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Ah, oh, I did something good. That's what we want. The gospel is a set of truth claims. We're sinners saved by grace alone. Second thing To walk in step with the gospel means your life is in step with the gospel, which means there's implications of what it means to walk in line and in truth with the gospel. We have to bring everything in our lives, like walking on that balance beam, into accordance to the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. So we have to continually think out the implications of of the gospel in our lives to bring our thinking, to bring our feelings, to bring our behavior in line with the gospel. And if some of you are thinking, I, I don't understand that, let me just give you a couple, okay? Generosity. God has called on you to be generous. Okay, I can show you in the law that you should be generous. But Romans 8.32 says, He, God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with Christ graciously give us all things? The Bible teaches us that, that God is infinitely generous toward us in the gospel. 
giving us his son to a poor and starved and dead people. And in order to walk in the truth of the gospel, we must be generous. Forgiveness. If you withhold forgiveness from someone, I know it's a process, not going to get into it now, but if you're adamant, I will not forgive. You are not walking in truth, in line, in step with the gospel. For the one who forgave you of all your sins, past, present, and future, that you deserve to be separated from him in hell for all eternity, forgives you freely by grace and mercy, and you say, I'm not forgiving someone, you're not walking in step with the gospel. Just read Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you claim to be a Christian and walking in step with the gospel when the gospel came to the poor and the marginalized, but you don't care at all about the poor and the marginalized, you're not walking in step with the gospel. You were once poor and marginalized spiritually, and yet Christ saved you. You see how the gospel implication of our lives. If you're following Christ and living in sexual immorality, you're not walking in line with the gospel. If you are gossiping about someone to make yourself feel better, you're not walking step with the gospel. When Christ is our all-satisfying and sufficiency, he's all-satisfying and he's sufficient for our image, why would we gossip? Why would we lie? What are you afraid of? We fear God and we're in awe of him and all that he is and all that he has done. See, the gospel implicates Every single area of our lives. I go on and on. I won't. One more. Titus 2. Listen to chapter two, uh, chapter 2 of Titus. Paul writes to young Titus. For the grace of God has appeared. Who's that? Jesus. Bringing salvation to all people. Grace brought salvation. And what does it do? He says it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. It is the grace of God, it is the work of the grace of God that teaches us and shows us it is the application of the gospel. Again, Tim Keller famously writes, said this, somewhat famously. He says, we never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. I was just having a conversation with somebody. He's like, ah, not, I can't really learn any more from the Bible. I'm like, oh, okay. You don't go to something more advanced. The gospel, he says, is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it's more like the hub in a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just ABC of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. We are not justified by the gospel and then sanctified by obedience, but the gospel is the way we grow and are renewed. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, the power through every barrier, end quote. Not saying we shouldn't obey. He's saying bring the gospel in line. And that's what he's not doing. Look what he says. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. How, how can we Jews, who know that we are justified by faith alone and not by works, look down on Gentiles, sinners, there's sarcasm there, or anyone else for that reason? Making Gentiles live like Jews is making them follow their laws, and yet the Jews themselves don't follow their laws, and both the Jew and the Gentile are justified by how? By faith in Jesus Christ. So stop making them try to live like something that you can't even do, Peter. That's what he's saying. 
What's the problem with racism? He's looking down on another race, on another people, on another culture. What if you lived your life, I lived my life, motivated by the gospel? What if you and I lived our lives and we looked at people that we may not like, they may smell funny, they may look funny, they may believe funny, they may belong to a wrong political party, whatever it is. What if we were motivated by the fact that you and I and them all collectively have rebelled and sinned against God all of us deserve the same thing that is damnation in hell. All of us deserve to be separated from God from eternity. But it was only by completely 100% sheer grace that you've been forgiven of your sins. You would not and could not look down on anyone. I don't care where they work. I don't care where they live. I don't care what country they come from. That's what's happening. Yet we know... We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also believe in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law. Why? Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Listen, verse 16, the very heart of the gospel. How does a man or a woman be right with God? To be proclaimed innocent, to be acquitted, to be cleared, to be declared righteous before the bar of God's justice. Paul says justification three times in his verse. We'll hit it really quickly and then we'll, we'll end. Number one, he mentions justification three times. First, he mentions it plainly. It's plainly taught, verse 16, A. It's personally received, verse 16, B. And it is pervasive in scope. So we'll hit it quickly. And we're going to return to this next week. Number one, plainly taught. Look what he says. You can't get any more clear. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. That explained God's plan of salvation. How does a person get right? Not by keeping the law, but by trusting in Jesus Christ alone. And throughout the Bible, Paul will continually teach. It's not about keeping ritual ceremonies or some moral achievement. Any kind of works in any way, shape, or form. And he, he opposes that false teaching that in any way that you and I can somehow in some way contribute in our right standing before God. So if you're here this morning and you think you can win acceptance from God by keeping some law that you made up, some moral stand that you are trying to keep, you have, fall, you have fallen into legalism and trying to do what the law cannot do. You are saved, rescued, redeemed, Forgiven by grace alone, through faith alone. Not that, not that there's anything wrong with the law. We're going to talk about that next week. So number one is plainly taught. Look, it's personally received. So we, he says in verse uh, 16b, we, Peter, Paul, we believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified. Right? Not by works of the law. Hey, 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 buddy. Hey, Peter, listen. Come on, guy. You know how we came. You, you know how we did. How many times you denied the Lord? Was it three times? I'm just reminding you. And by the way, yeah, yeah, I was murdering people, cutting their heads. I was, you know, I was just slaughtering Christians. Do we keep the law and get saved, Peter? No, I don't think so. How do we get saved? When we personally received and trusted in Christ Jesus alone. So listen, no matter how plainly justification by faith alone is taught, it has to be personally received. You could sit in this church every single Sunday 
and hear the message of the gospel every single Sunday. If you do not respond, your justification by faith alone will mean nothing to you. Nothing. It's a response. So, so my question is, have you renounced all of your own efforts to save yourself? Asking instead for God to save you through Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, who rose from the dead. You have to respond. Plainly taught, personally received, and praise God is pervasive in scope. Look at the last verse, this part of that verse. By works of the law, no one will be justified. By works of the law, no one will be justified. If the apostle Peter, if Paul the Pharisee, who says he was blameless according to the law, if those two men, apostles and Pharisees, who's now an apostle, had to be justified by faith, not by the law, how much more do you and I need to do? We're justified the same way. In fact, if you think about it, it's kind of absurd to think that Peter would want to compel the Gentiles to keep the very law he had stopped trusting in for his own justification and when he trusted in Christ himself. We, human race, have been trying to save ourselves since Genesis chapter 2. Do you know that? Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the Bible opens up, God creates Adam and Eve There's shalom, there's unbroken fellowship. They're walking, God's walking in the garden. They're in a right relationship with God, why? Because there's no sin. Chapter one and two, things are going great. Chapter three, things kind of fall apart, right? They trust, they don't trust God, they don't trust his provision, his character, his goodness, and they sin against God. And when sin enters the world, they are not right with God, they are separated from God. And you know what the Bible says they do? Genesis chapter 3, verse 7. The eyes of the both, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they knew they were naked, there was shame, and they what? Sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The Bible says that then God goes seeking after the covenant head, which is Adam. He hears the, the sound of God, and what does he do? Him and his wife go hide themselves. From the presence of God, they better hide because he said, if you sin against me, you're going to die. They're like, I don't want to die. Let's run. The Lord said, where are you, Adam? I'm here. I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. And God pronounces judgment, curses upon the serpent, the woman. He ends the evangelum, the first gospel there as well. And then the curse upon the man. And then what does God do immediately? He does for them what they tried to do for themselves and failed. It says that God then made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. They sought cover. They sought their own salvation. They sought their own covering by sowing fig leaves to cover their shame and their nakedness. Works-based salvation. God steps in in grace and kills and slaughters an animal and clothes them by his grace. Substitutionary sacrifice is the gospel. Covering yourself is the false gospel. Same thing with Cain and Abel. One gave what? The first fruits. You know what that means? Everything I have is yours. I give you the first, trusting you that you're going to give me more. The other one, out of his own hand, in his own field, and what he brought before God. Family, 
A false gospel is you can work your way, earn your way, do good enough, try hard enough, and God will somehow love you, forgive you, and accept you. That's a false gospel. The truth is that God loves you and accepts you because of Christ Jesus alone. We are made right. We are declared forgiven. We are justified. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us by faith alone. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you rested on his finished work? The sufficiency of the cross. Respond. By humbling yourself. Recognizing that, you know what? We've all looked at people a certain way. We all look at ourselves better than others. It's sin. We come the same way, and that's to the cross. Will you respond in faith today and put aside all your self-effort? It will get you nowhere except hell in the end. Let us pray. Our Father, we are a humble people and recognize that we are so, so dependent upon all that you have done for us in Christ. God, we come with empty hands. There's nothing we can give you but our sin so that you can wash and cleanse it away by the blood of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that now as we respond to the gospel, as we respond to the message of being made right and reconciled, forgiven, the imputation of Jesus' righteousness on our behalf, we pray that we would respond in faith and worship of the one true and living God. Holy Spirit, come. Empower us. Let us see the beauty, the mercy, the grace, and the incalculable worth of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. In his name and for his glory we pray. Amen.